Hi, I'm Andy McDonald, Senior Pastor of Whole Life Church here in Orlando, Florida. We're a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational congregation, a faith community committed to our mission to love people into lifelong friendship with God. And we're committed to our vision to be a church without walls, fully engaged in serving the people of our community. Thank you for joining us as we continue Speaking of Grace. So glad you joined us today for worship. And as before I preach, I want to just ask us to bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives. That even in times of waiting, we can know that your presence is with us and that you can reduce that frustration of having to wait. Give us courage and open our eyes to see what we can learn today about waiting while suffering. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week as we introduced this series called While We Wait, we quickly and simply established that, that waiting isn't easy. Maybe less easy with each succeeding generation. In an age of instant everything, we may lose patience with waiting. I laugh sometimes when I catch myself frustrated at how slow my phone is in retrieving messages or following my commands. Why won't Google Maps open faster? And in those rare moments when I'm thoughtful, that's when I laugh at my impatience. Right there in my hand is not just a phone, but my portable computer, communication device, connector to the world. I call up maps and can see just about anywhere in the world. I can tell it to lead me to the store I'm headed to, and, well, well, voice commands will come along, as you know, and direct me right to the place. Jeff and Tammy, Vicky, and I were in Rome, Italy. There is really no place more difficult to drive that I've ever experienced than Rome. But on the GPS, we named a favorite piazza of Jeff's, and with no difficulty at all, we were instantly directed right there. How often have you stood by the front of your microwave, tapping on the counter uh, for it to hurry up? You don't want to wait the couple of minutes it takes to pop your corn. Waiting isn't easy. But to wait in suffering is insufferable. It is excruciatingly intolerable. When our minds run through our contact list of biblical characters who had to wait in suffering, there is nearly an automatic first place winner for waiting and suffering, our poor friend Job. In the book that bears his name is thought by many scholars to be the oldest book in our Bible. Regardless, it's an ancient story which provides one of our best peaks behind the scenes in heaven. It contains this encounter of God and Satan that enables us to catch a little a glimpse of the, of the primary controversy between good and evil in our universe. I believe there is ample evidence in Scripture and in my own life experience to land on the side that believes that God is unselfish, to follow the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation, to observe the actions and choices of God in that story, at least for me, reveals an amazingly generous and unselfish God. I believe we can build a strong case that unselfishness is the very foundational principle of God's kingdom. And, and the roots of the controversy between God and Satan, Lucifer turned the devil, it is over his denial that God is unselfish. His charge, his accusation, is that God, rather than being this generous, unselfish ruler of all, is instead constantly acting only with self-interest. 
He's out to prove that the principle behind all of God's actions is selfishness. Now, with the creation of humanity, Satan extends that accusation to God's followers, that they too are only in it to win it. Uh, They are following God to protect their real God themselves, that loyalty to God is really acted out of selfish loyalty to self. Before we consider what we can learn from Job about what to do while we wait, let's consider Jesus and his coming to our earth in light of this accusation that God is selfish. We can't even begin to comprehend what sacrifice of unselfishness was involved in tearing apart that which had always been together in total unity. For Jesus to step away from the glory of Trinity life and come to earth incarnate in the form of a human to demonstrate unselfishness 24-7 for his years here, giving his life as a ransom for many. To endure false accusations... Suffering not just the physical reality of the cross, but the abandonment of everyone to reconcile all things to the Father is is this magnificent and glorious demonstration that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not selfish, but the very essence of unselfishness, the very epitome of love. When you and I accept the gift of salvation and redemption that was the most selfless and expensive gift, born of great suffering, when we say, yeah, I'll take it, thanks for the gift, we join Jesus in demonstrating in our practical everyday life that God and God in us is an unselfish God. We choose the right, not just for personal gain, personal benefit, we choose it because it is right. We we take our stand for truth, the reality that unselfishness is the right path, even if there is suffering and sacrifice for that stand. We sometimes don't think much about Job before his suffering begins. We just think of the suffering story. But life beforehand was good. I mean, he was a respected guy. The the comments of his, his, his comments, his opinions, his judgments carried weight. People in the community who came into hard times, they knew about the generosity of Job. When somebody was involved in some deal that didn't ring true, that had fingers of exploitation in it, Job was the guy who would call them to accountability and get things set right. If you looked around, no one else had it made like Job. He was respected, had an amazing ranch, had provided for his kids so they could be close by. He wasn't just appreciated by his own generation, but even the young people loved Job. He loved gathering people around his place and worshiping together. There was nothing not to envy about Job and his life. The beginning of the story is fascinating. Nowhere else in Scripture do we have this, as I mentioned before, behind-the-scenes access to eavesdrop on a conversation between God and Satan. Listen to Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12 from the message. One day when the angels came to report to God, Satan, who was the designated accuser, came along with them. God singled out Satan and said to him, what have you been up to? Satan answered God, well, going here and there, just checking things out on earth. God said to Satan, have you noticed my friend Job? There's no one quite like him, honest and true to his word, totally devoted to God and and hating evil. 
Satan, Satan retorted, so do you think Job does all that out of sheer goodness of his heart? Why, no one ever had it so good as Job. I mean, you pamper him like a pet, make sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. You bless everything he does. He can't lose. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away everything that is his? He'd curse you right to your face. That's what. God replied, we'll see. Go ahead, do what you want with all that is his, just don't hurt him. And then Satan left the presence of God. Satan now takes all that Job possessed, all the oxen, all the sheep, all the camels, all the men and maidservants are killed, and his ten children have a house where they are gathered, struck by this mighty wind that makes the place collapse, and they were all killed. And Job remains faithful to God, and so Satan bargains to go after his body, skin for skin, he says. And Job breaks out in painful boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. When we suffer, even though it may pale in comparison to Job's suffering, when when we suffer, we may join Job in declaring that we too loathe or despise or hate our own lives. When you're suffering and you ache in the loss of one you love and there's no escape day or night from the physical and mental agony, it's easy to imagine yourself better off dead. When you're suffering and there seems to be no answer, no hope, no resolution to just not be can be appealing. When all is lost economically, socially, the best of your family, your reputation, your friends, you long for some escape. When Job's three friends, and I'll say friends in quotation marks, his friends, well-meaning but misled, when they hear what has happened to Job, they rendezvous at this agreed place and they agree together to go and sympathize with their friend Job and try to comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they, they could hardly recognize him. They joined his sorrow. They, they came to him. They tore their robes. They threw dust on their heads. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. These may have been the best seven days of Job's time of suffering. Friends present and quiet. One of our first lessons for while we wait, and it isn't something that Job did, but it is the seven days and nights in silent presence. When we're suffering terribly, we know the value of silence. Why is it that when we visit someone suffering, we forget silence value and start talking? Be very, very careful what you say to someone suffering. Your words can make it worse, but your silence will be a comfort. One author captures this well. I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came to me and talked of God's dealings, of why it had happened. He talked of hope and beyond the grave. He talked continually. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he would go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He didn't preach. He just sat beside me for an hour or more. Just listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. 
Job's three friends believed in what today we would call the prosperity gospel. That if you believe and follow and obey and trust promises, that God will bless you big, in a big way. There is a little more negative spin to their thinking because they also believed that if you suffered, it was because you had sinned. That bad things happened to bad people. In the speeches recorded, these three friends were big on trying to convince Job he'd messed up. And all this tragedy is retributive justice of God upon him. Somewhere in his life, there must be some secret, unconfessed, unforgiven sin. And that's why all this has happened. David implied that his children's sins are why they're dead. Confess your sin, Job, and God can again bless you. Job is ticked because until now he'd have agreed with his friends that God blesses his followers. And when you step out of line, he removes his blessing or worse, rains down retributive justice upon you. But now Job has searched his heart and his life. He's clear that that he's not been in rebellion. He, he hasn't stepped away from God. So, so he's is confused and why God would, would step away from him. He wants to plead his case to God. He's already decided he's sticking with God. He's already thwarted the claims of Satan that Job and all other God followers are only selfish following God for personal benefit. Job 13, 15 is a quote from Job. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Maybe it was familiarity with Job's story that inspired the fiery furnace boys. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Threatened with what normal people would have understood as certain death, they speak up, explaining that they aren't changing gods, and they are clear they worship God because of his unselfish nature, not for what they can get. They replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he'll rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. It worked out for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But their commitment was, but even if it does not, like I said, maybe maybe they learned it from Job. I hope John the Baptist, awaiting his beheading in prison, found some comfort in the suffering of Job and others down through time. I'm sure Job would like to have been privileged, wouldn't we all, to the behind-the-scenes conversations of God and Satan. He would have been comforted knowing that God was bragging about him. But Job, like all of us, at some moment was called to choose God even when we can't see how it works out. In chapters 26 through 31, Job makes his defense. And then in verse 35, winding down, he says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. So after Elihu's speech, God does show up in chapters 38 to 41. And basically through a series of questions, he draws the contrast between his all-knowing and all-able reality and the man Job. And Job responds, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you, Almighty God? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. 
And then near the end, Job replies to God, I repent in dust and ashes. I think it's cool that near the end of the book there, God calls his counselors, these three friends uh, and Elihu all, to account, telling them that what they have spoken about God isn't correct. What can we learn from Job while we wait? In this time of 2020 suffering, when hundreds of thousands have died, when there's hardship and economic loss, when we have lost connections, when we have been restricted from being there as we would like to be for those experiencing loss. I think one of the lessons from Job might be, don't be cynical. Uh, Keep looking up. Maybe the lessons could be easier seen in the life of Julian of Norwich. Brendan Pelfrey, a retired Greek Orthodox priest and scholar, devoted much of his career to studying Julian. During her lifetime, Julian experienced the first and second waves of the Black Death in England, which historians estimate the first wave to have killed 40 to 60 percent and the second wave 20 percent of the entire population. She knew about life during a pandemic. Pelfrey believes her counsel is uniquely positioned for COVID-19. And I believe she gives some fine words to what we might learn from Job's suffering that can inform us while we wait. She said, turn your suffering into his, that's into Jesus's. Let Let yourself experience a bit of the cross. Let your suffering become redemptive suffering. For those of you on the front lines, as you've cared for the sick, put yourself at risk, maybe contracted COVID-19, you too have suffered, but hopefully it has been redemptive suffering. Some of those you've cared for have suffered redemptively as they've cared for you, asking how they can help you. I love what Pelfrey suggests. In the context of COVID-19, he says, we are being forced into a kind of solitude. Some people can't take it, and we're seeing that. But but what if you really had to come to terms with seclusion? Think about how much you depend on other people, and think about who you really are. He suggests that Julian would say this, thank, thank goodness, this is a good step. You're seeing it as a bad thing. You're seeing it as a pandemic. Oh my God, we're all going to die. And she says, yes, as a matter of fact, You're all going to die, one way or the other. So embrace it and and stop being terrified. The next step is to be sensible about it. Don't make other people sick. But on the other hand, encounter yourself. Encounter yourself maybe for the first time in this suffering. I think Job might say to us, learn from my story. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. No matter the suffering, know that it has meaning in a larger picture, probably beyond yours and my understanding or comprehension. And and grow, grow, because we grow best and most in and through times of suffering. As this pandemic continues, or whatever the next crisis that will follow it, when it comes, choose redemptive suffering. Look for new ways to witness to the reality that God is not selfish in any way. And as his followers, we'll willingly suffer for the redemption of others. Hi, this is Randy McGray, podcast producer and host here at Whole Life Church. 
loving people into a lifelong friendship with God is our mission at the Whole Life Church and our podcasts, Speaking of Grace and its companion, 15 with Andy, Randy, and Jeff, are designed to help facilitate conversations that help us grow together in that pursuit. Now that you've heard the message for this week, don't forget to check out the Whole Life Takeaways for this message. Swipe up in today's show notes and join the conversation. Speaking of conversations, each Wednesday morning we take a closer look at the week's message. That's right, the one you just listened to. We discuss practical ways to apply spiritual lessons and ask honest questions about the issues we face as Christians, all focused through the lens of grace. Your voice is a welcomed addition to that conversation. We encourage your thoughts and your questions by sending a voicemail or text to 407-965-1607 or send an email to podcast at wholelife.church. You can find everything podcast-related on our website, wholelife.church slash podcast. And plan on spending every Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning with us as we bring you the Whole Life Church inspiration you love straight into your headphones. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.